Thank you so very much, praise team. Um, I want to just take a moment and uh, pray for the Mata family. As many of you know, Emmy Mata was airlifted by helicopter to Milwaukee this past week because she was uh, septic. Her blood pressure had gotten dangerously low and she was experiencing kidney failure. Uh, Julie took an emergency flight out from K.I. Sawyer to Milwaukee and um, on Friday got this very nice picture sent from the hospital room of Emmy smiling as we normally know her and love her and she is doing very much better. But Julie remains down in Milwaukee with uh, Emmy and uh, we are just very grateful for the Lord's mercy and grace in a very scary time. Uh, Diane, I want to thank you for doing double duty today uh, because uh, Julie was unable to be here. And so let's take a moment, shall we, and let's just thank the Lord and continue to pray for Emmy's recovery. Father, we know that prayer has been answered on behalf of Emmy. We know she was dangerously sick, even life-threateningly sick. And you have brought her through. And we're just so grateful for this. We thank you that the family could all be there together. And we're so grateful for this image that we have received of Emmy standing on her own and smiling. Uh, The young girl that we love and know and is so dear to us. We just continue to pray now for your faithful care of her life and bring her through this time of uh, severe illness. We thank you for the wonderful family that you have given to her. And Lord, during times like this, you can work in a young person's life in a very unique and special way. And we pray that for Emmy and for Kenzie as well, that they would see how wonderfully you have blessed them and have loved them so specially. And may this be a time for them of appreciating the kind of God who has placed them in the family that they are in. So until we see Julie again, we just pray, Lord, for your continued blessing of the Mata family. And we thank you, Father, for those that are stepping in at VBS to take Julie's place next week. So many talented people here at Bethel and so willing And so um, we pray that you will bless them as they are working on behalf of Julie all week. So we love you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the love we have for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1983, the famed actor Cary Grant passed away at 82 years of age. And as you look at him, particularly in his younger years, you recognize that he was the essence of tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, When you look like this, opportunities just come your way. Uh, You just show up and they say you've got the part. And you can see that uh, when he died, here was the headline in one of the newspapers. Elegant sophistication was the actor's trademark. 
He said about him he had a romance with the television and movie camera like no other actor. But despite these accolades, Grant died a disillusioned and a very tragic man. He said when he was younger, he never worried about death because he figured modern science would find a cure for death. As an elderly man, he became disillusioned with science, and he said in an interview that he thought he only had about 70,000 hours left to live. That's about eight years. When the end finally came, one of the very last things that this famous, beloved actor said was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And Cary Grant died without hope. I wonder how many of us think modern science will ever find a cure for death. Isn't this the folly of modern, sophisticated people? They don't know the cause of death. And if we don't know the cause of death, we will never discover the cure for death. Now, last Sunday in our studies in Romans, we saw the cause of death. It is original sin. And you may recall the Bible says there are three types of sin. There is Adam's sin in the garden. And that is charged to our account because he was our head. He was the federal head of the race. So we are guilty and under the sentence of death. And then we are guilty of inherited sin. We are sinful, inheriting a corrupt nature. Now both of those two are what original sin means. And then because of original sin, there is a third sin. That is, we are guilty of personal sin. We sin personally by our own choices. And it is this relationship to Adam that gave Cary Grant only 70,000 hours left to live. But now today we are coming to the cure. The only cure which is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call this relationship union with Christ. Pastor Charles Spurgeon had this to say about our union with Christ. Listen to what he said. He said, there is no joy in this life like union with Christ. The more that we feel it, the happier we are. If you are here today and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no greater joy than union with Christ. And the more that you feel this union, the happier you will be. Now, why is this true? Well, the answer is because our union with Christ conquers our union with Adam. This morning, as we come to the last part of Romans chapter 5, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul develops two contrasts between Adam and Christ, and these two contrasts leads to two conclusions. In fact, I want you to take your Bibles with me and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. And I want you to notice in these two sections how each section ends with almost an identical phrase. Notice the first section ends at verse 17. And I want you to notice the phrase, "...through the one man, Jesus Christ." And then drop down to the end of the second section, verse 21, and notice 
an almost identical phrase, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what are these two phrases telling us? That our union with Jesus Christ conquers our union with Adam. To put it very simply, we could say this, to be in Christ overcomes to be in Adam. And that is the greatest source of joy to any Christian. The more we understand it, the happier we are. And so this morning, let's look together at these two contrasts. And then because Paul wants us to understand it so deeply, he will draw two conclusions. Let's bow just for a moment for prayer, shall we? Oh Lord God, we're coming to what it really means at the very core to be a Christian. It is to be united with Christ in in all of the wonder of His salvation. And therefore, everything that we are in Adam is conquered by Him. It begins now with a relationship with Him, but one day in glory it will be totally complete as we are new men and women in every way in the presence of the Lord. Teach us now this great truth for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's begin, shall we, with this first contrast. Number one, what Paul tells us in verse 15 is that Christ's sacrifice is greater than Adam's sin. Look back at verse 15 and notice this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now the main point in this verse is that what Jesus Christ did is greater than what Adam did. And several things in verse 15 emphasize this. As I read the verse, you will notice that the phrases, free gift and grace are found four times. In fact, they are in a crisscross pattern so that we have free grace, free gift, and then grace. And then again, we have free gift and grace. And this crisscross pattern between these four words is the emphasis of this verse. The emphasis is the power of grace. Do we not often think that grace is an attitude? The grace of God is His attitude towards us. But now what we're beginning to see here is grace is far more than God's attitude. It is a power that God unleashes. The emphasis is on the power of grace. The second thing in this verse is trespass and free gift in the original language are phonetic parallels. That is, if we could sound them out in the Greek language, they sound alike. So what the Bible is telling us is that free grace, which sounds like trespass, counteracts the trespass of Adam's sin. 
And then I want you to notice that grace or the free gift is much more than Adam's trespass. And much more is a very interesting phrase. It is an adjective and an adverb that means it is a comparative expressing a higher degree of quality. So what Christ did is of greater quality than what Adam did. And then I think all of us know, fourthly, what the word abounded means. It means to be in abundance. It means to be overflowing. And that's what the grace of God towards His people is. Uh, can I give you a youper illustration here this morning that uh, only youpers would understand? How much snow did we have last winter? How about much more? How about we abounded in snow? How about it was fully sufficient to meet the need, right? That's the point that he's making here. That's the picture about the grace of God. So what the Bible is saying is this. Adam's sin unleashed death. That's a very potent force. But Christ's sacrifice unleashed the grace of God. That is a far more powerful force. Anything that can reverse something else is far superior. This past winter, I developed a sty in my eye, and it would not go away over many days. I went to the walk-in clinic, and there the doctor gave me some penicillin. And sure enough, after a few days of taking penicillin, my sty healed. Now, you all know why. An antibiotic destroys the bacteria that is causing the infection because the antibiotic is stronger than the bacteria. And that's what God is saying to us here. The grace that is unleashed in Christ is like that antibiotic. It is able to cancel sin and all of its effects. This is why the Bible speaks about grace in such expressive terms. The Bible calls grace abundant grace, abounding grace, surpassing grace, and sufficient grace. In fact, in one verse alone, 2 Corinthians 9.8, the Bible calls it abounding, sufficient, and abundant all in one verse. It is unlimited and it is sufficient for every need. And that's what we have in what Christ has done. Now, it should not then surprise us a power this wonderful, this great, this all-sufficient and abounding should then give believers greater results. And that's exactly what we find. There is a very clear relationship between verses 16 and 17 and verse 15. See, verse 15, Christ's sacrifice is more powerful and then verses 16 and 17 tell us how it is more powerful. And here's what begins to happen. As we see these greater results, we see what it means to be united in Christ. Let's look at them, shall we? Paul gives us two. Here's the first one. Number one, in Christ... We are accepted. Look at verse 16. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now I want you to pause here with me. Notice how powerful the Bible is telling us the work of Christ is. It is very, very clear that Paul is amazed by what Jesus has done. He says that Adam's one sin brought condemnation and death upon the whole race. It's very interesting in his sermon on this passage, the late Pastor Jim Boyce says if that's the only sin that was ever committed, Jesus would have had to come to die for that one sin. If there had never been another sin except for the sin of Adam in the garden, Jesus would have still come to die for that sin. And think about this. If it was the only sin, and Jesus left heaven's gates became incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and died for that one sin and that one sin alone, would it not be enough for us to praise Him for all eternity? What's the answer? Yes, it would. But was that the only sin that Adam committed? You say, well, how do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that Adam lived... 930 years. Genesis 5, 5. You know what that is? That's a lot of years of sinning, isn't it? That's a lot of years of sinning. Sometimes when we're talking to people and trying to help them to see their sins, we will use the three sins a day illustration. And we'll say, let's just suppose that you were to have sinned only three sins a day. Did you think a wrong thought, have a wrong attitude, say a wrong word, or do something bad? And most people will concede, if you're pretty good, you know, that's pretty good. I mean, you're doing very well. You know how many sins Adam would have committed if he sinned only three sins a day? Are you ready? One million, eighteen thousand, three hundred and Jesus died for all those sins that's what verse 16 is saying but then there have been thousands of years and billions of people since so how many sins is that that's astronomical No wonder this verse tells us that what Christ accomplished in His sacrifice is much more than what Adam did. You see, what Christ accomplished in His death removed sin and put us right with God. As verse 16 says, we are justified declared not guilty, and given a righteous standing that was purchased for us by the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, I want you to think for me with, for we, for, with me for just a minute about the practical ramifications of this. 
In a sermon on this very passage, Pastor John MacArthur says this, Greater than even God's hatred of sin is His love for the sinner. Think about that. What this is saying is as much as God hates the sin which we have committed, even greater is His love for the sinner. You see, the only way a multitude of sins could be paid for is if God did it Himself. An infinite number of sins demands an infinite sacrifice to pay for them. Only God can make an infinite sacrifice. So He came in the person of His own Son. So great is God's love for us that He paid the price which He Himself demanded. If you are here today... And you have ever questioned, does God really love me? You can stop questioning right now. If you've ever thought all I've been through and and all the difficulties of my life, is there a God at the heart of the universe who really loves me? You can stop wondering right now. Because this is abundant grace, it is abounding grace, it is surpassing grace, it is sufficient grace, it is unlimited and sufficient for every need you have. God loves you. God loves you. Now Paul says, there is a second greater result. And in verse 17, he says this, In Christ, we receive the fullness of life. To be united with Christ means we receive the fullness of life. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now notice here the second contrast really is between death and life. And what we are told is that Adam's sin unleashed the reign of death. Spiritual death, separation from God, physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. And if we die in that condition, ultimately, eternal death, separation of soul and body for eternity from God. But notice what Jesus brought, verse 17. Christ brought the reign of life. He says, those who receive the abundance of grace... And the free gift of righteousness that Christ's death provides, we reign in life. Sometimes a diagram is very helpful for us to see what the Bible is teaching. And this morning I came across this diagram this week that I want to share with you because it simplifies exactly what the Bible is teaching here. There are two great men who dominate all of history. One is Adam, who was the head of the human race. 
And Adam sinned, and God charged that sin to us. As a result, it brought condemnation. And now death reigns over all of us. But God, in His great love and in His mercy, sent Christ. And Christ is related to us because He became one of us, and therefore He brought the grace of God. When he lived a perfect life and brought that perfect life to the cross and died, he died to pay for our sins that we might be acquitted. And so negatively we can be forgiven, but then positively God can take the righteousness of Christ, apply it to our account, and accept us in his sight as perfectly righteous. Since righteousness, perfect righteousness, is the basis for acceptance with God, it is then the basis for eternal life. So that once a person accepts by faith and repentance what Christ has done, they receive the eternal life that Jesus came to provide. And what Christ did, as we can now see very clearly, is he canceled and undid everything that Adam unleashed. When I was young and I first heard about eternal life, I thought it meant a life that never ends in heaven. So I thought of eternal life as a quantity of life. One day, somebody pointed out this to me. Everyone has an eternal soul, and so every one of us will live forever. And I thought, that's exactly right. So the issue is not, will you live forever, but where will you live and in what condition? Jesus clarified this in John 5, 29, when he said, there are some that will rise to a resurrection of life, but others will rise to a resurrection of judgment. So that primarily in the Bible, eternal life does not simply refer to a quantity of life, living forever in heaven, but it refers to a new quality of life that starts now and it leads ultimately to heaven. In fact, I want you to see with me this morning how Jesus defined eternal life. In his great high priestly prayer in John 17, he gave us one of the clearest definitions of what this life means that you will find anywhere in the entire Bible. Let's, let's read it together. Join me as we read Jesus' words in John 17, verse 3. Let's read it. And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Him who you have sent, Jesus Christ. Now this word know, it's not referring to knowing up here. It is the familiar word in the Bible that refers to the marriage relationship. So it's describing intimacy and relationship. Notice then what eternal life is. Eternal life is a relationship with God. 
That's what it is. I have in my library a book written by Charles Horn, a wonderful Bible student. The title of the book is Salvation. And I want you to hear how Charles Horn explains this eternal life, this relationship. Listen to what he says. When the sinner is restored to his proper relationship with God through Christ, he enters a new life. A life in harmony with the life of God himself. This is a kind of life infinitely superior to that life previously possessed. I often like to describe it in this visual way. In the beginning, God and mankind were in a perfect relationship of harmony and intimacy. But then mankind turned his back upon God through sin. Because God is of pure eyes than to behold iniquity. And because God will by no means clear the guilty, God turned his back upon man. And everyone comes into this world in this same relationship, and we prove the relationship by our many sins that we are alienated from God and under the sentence of condemnation. But God in mercy and in grace and in love sent Christ. Christ became one of us so that He could identify with us and represent us. He gave a perfect sacrifice and rose again over death, sin, and hell and conquered it. And now God has been satisfied. He has turned back towards man. What's left for us to do? What's left for us to do is to repent. To put our trust in what Christ has done. And God reconciles us to Himself. And we are now back in this relationship of fellowship and harmony that we had from the very beginning. But think about this. Adam had his own personal righteousness. And that righteousness was variable. Therefore, he stood in relationship with God in his own personal righteousness. And when he sinned, it failed. What about us? We have something far greater. We have the righteousness of Christ that we stand in relationship to God. A righteousness that is not malleable, feeble, weak, and changeable, but a perfect righteousness based upon a perfect Son of God who cannot fail. And what we have in our relationship with God goes far, far greater than what Adam had himself. And it is now this life that we have that's on a higher plane that we can begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit. We now, in a limited way, can begin to experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's life on a higher plane. And eventually that life will be perfected with all those virtues in glory. Now so amazing was this to the Apostle Paul. And so much does he want us to understand it. That he concludes Romans 5 with two conclusions. And I want us to see them this morning because they're what Paul is driving at. Let me put the first one up and I want you to read with me the last three words that are in red. What Christ did cancels what Adam did, let's read it together, in every way. Look at verse 18. Therefore, here's the conclusion. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now what you can see here is this is a summary of what has just been said. Paul is such a great teacher that he knows every once in a while you've got to stop and summarize so that your readers will get what you're saying and he wants us to get it. And what he's saying here is that for everything Adam did, there's a parallel that is overcome in Christ. Somebody has put together this very helpful chart that shows us the contrast. If you are here this morning and you are not somebody who has repented and placed your faith in Christ then you at this very moment are on the right side. You are in Adam. And notice what he did. He brought sin into the world. Many will die because of his sin. His sin results in condemnation. His disobedience brings sin to many. And his sin will reign in death. And today, if you are outside of Christ, make no mistake about it, you are in Adam. You are in Adam. And what is listed on the right side that we have seen here in Romans 5 is the condition you find yourself in. But look at the other side. Today, if you've repented and trusted Christ and you know Him, you have moved from the left side to the right side. And notice what Christ in His marvelous grace does. He gives people victory over sin. Many believers will live because of His grace. His death results in justification, a perfect standing before God. His obedience brings the righteousness that God says He has to have to accept us to many. 
And His grace reigns to bring eternal life. And if you know Christ, this is now what has happened to you. And you are now living life on this higher plane. You're able to experience love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because that's the life God produces. There's another very important conclusion. The second conclusion is partly what this chapter has been driving it. And we've got to see this second conclusion this morning. What Christ did won't fail because grace wins over sin for believers. I can just hear somebody say this morning, Pastor, what happens if we sin again? What happens if we fail? By the way, the question to all of us this morning, will we? Will we sin again? Will we fail? Yes, of course we will. There's no doubt about it. So then we ask the question, all right, when that happens, will we lose our salvation? And I want you to notice the answer given in verse 20 and 21. Please look at it with me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you see what this says? When we sin again as a believer, and we will, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Look at what this is saying. The power of grace has invaded your life, and that power cannot lose to the power of sin. It is very interesting, you'll notice in verse 21, it begins with, so that. That is a construction that is called a result clause, and it means sure accomplishment. So that some of my professors in seminary translated this phrase this way, grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice, not grace might reign, maybe grace will reign, I hope grace will reign. This is a result clause. It refers to sure accomplishment. Grace will reign through this righteousness provided by Christ, leading to eternal life. Because we are in union through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me share with you this morning as I bring this to a close. In a sermon that he preached on this passage by Pastor Jim Boyce, who is now 
gone to be with the Lord. Listen carefully to what he says. I do not mean to suggest, even for a moment, that God condones sin. God hates sin so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die to rescue men and women from its destructive rule and tyranny. He hates sin in you. He will continually work to remove it and give you victory over it. But the point I am making here is that God will never diminish His grace toward you because of your sin. Your sin did not keep God's grace from flowing to you in full measure when you came to Christ. It will not keep grace from you now. You see what God is saying? Grace cannot fail in the life of a true believer. Because the power of Jesus Christ cannot fail. And this is what it means to be in union with Christ. The greatest joy you will ever know in your life is the joy of union with Christ. And the more that you feel it, the happier you will be. Let's read it together, shall we? Let's read the two conclusions together. Join me. What Christ did cancels what Adam did in every way. What Christ did won't fail because grace wins over sin for believers. It's early, I know, can we say together, Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow together. I'm speaking to two people here, and only two. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. There's no other relationship. And this morning, if you could not say, Pastor, I'm on the in Christ side of that comparison. If you cannot say that, it means one thing you're still on the in-Adam side. You're alienated from God. You're under the sentence of death. And like Cary Grant, at the very end, all you'll be able to say is, I'm sorry. But this very moment, you can leave the kingdom of darkness and you can enter the kingdom of God's Dear son, you can confess to the Lord from your very heart your desperate need and cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. You can repent of living life on your own terms 
And you can turn to Jesus. You can ask Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to be your Lord. Forgive you. Give you the gift of eternal life. Make you a child of God. And then trusting the promise of His Word, you can say, now Lord, with a new life, a new power, I'm going to live for You. I know I will not do it perfectly. But Christ will walk with me all the way until He takes me to glory. What a wonderful day this would be if you would leave in Adam and come to in Christ. Turn to the Savior now. While He calls you. While your heart is tender. While the Spirit of God speaks to you. Oh Lord, thank you today. Thank you today. We love you. We serve you. We follow you. For Jesus' wonderful sake.